for our sermon text then, let's turn to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis, now chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and I'll start in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided, and it became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onk stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for giving us your word to us. We pray, Father, that you would uh, enlighten our minds to teach us, to instruct us, uh, to train us through your word, to help us understand uh, ourselves, to know you, to know our place, to know what we ought to do to be grateful for your mercy and for your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the beginning of this passage, we have a phrase, these are the generations. In this case, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, this phrase, these are the generations, is a structural marker that's going to be used throughout the book of Genesis. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of, and it's going to list different people, and this uh, breaks it up into uh, ten sections uh, throughout the book of Genesis. And what the phrase means is something like, this is what happened to him and his family, or this is what resulted. It's kind of taking what's already been described and then uh, moving the story on to, here's what happened. Here's what resulted. Um, In other words, in this case, God made the heavens and the earth, so what became of them? What happened to them? Um, 
Now, this section will cover chapters 2 through 4, as it explains how creation went from blessing to curse through man's disobedience. And what follows, not only in this case, but in other cases where this phrase is used, uh, often does go back a few steps uh, before going forward again. Um, as it uh, maybe goes back to some part of the previous story to then move on uh, forward to what happened next. And that's what happens here. Genesis 2 goes back to the seventh day. We had, or sorry, to the sixth day. You have the seven days, uh, six days God works, and on the seventh he rests. And then we have this introductory phrase, and then we have the talk about the creation of man. It's like, well, didn't God already make man? Yes, he did, on the sixth day. But now he's going to cover that, the events of that day with a particular focus now on God's relation to man and uh, what man uh, did. So recounts the, chapter 2 in particular recounts the sixth day with a special focus on man and his original unfallen relation to God, because that's going to be important background to then what happens in chapter 3, uh, which I believe happens after the seventh day. Um, but you kind of need to know what happened in chapter 2. And with this special focus on, on the relation of God and man, there's an additional name for God that's introduced. So far, it's always been God. God made the heavens and the earth. Um, Hebrew would be Elohim. Um, here, though, it's not only God, but the Lord God. It's speaking of the same person, obviously, the same being, uh, but is using a, another name or title that's, uh, or in this case, a name that is also used in Scripture to describe him, uh, the Lord. Of course, in our translation, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all capital letters. That means it's not simply the word for Lord, which would be uh, Adonai, would be my Lord, but it is the word uh, W-H-Y-H in Hebrew, uh, what we usually pronounce as Jehovah. Some people pronounce it as Yahweh, uh, but it is the name uh, that God reveals in the Old Testament. So uh, Jehovah Elohim and particularly, it's the name connected with what he said to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. And so he is the eternal God. He is also the faithful God who will be faithful to his covenant people uh, from age to age and can be relied upon to do so. And so here it is making the point that God, the sovereign creator, uh, Elohim stoops low to enter into covenant fellowship with man as the faithful uh, I am who makes his promise and covenant with him. So when the Lord God created man, he generously placed him in the garden of Eden and he entered into a covenant of life with him. That's what we find in this chapter. God created man and he generously placed him in the midst of the garden of Eden and generously entered into a covenant of life with him. This was a covenant that Adam and his heirs broke, uh, broke in Adam. And so in this chapter, we see a glimpse of paradise that was lost. Uh, but it also teaches us about the paradise and blessing that we regain through the last Adam, through Jesus Christ. Uh, so the application in the end is going to be hold fast to Jesus Christ as the source of life and as the door to paradise. But to break this section down, I'm going to first look at the creation of man 
his origin, his work, the Garden of Eden, man's original home, and the covenant of works, uh, this covenant that God made with man. So first, God created man. And we learn more details about that here in chapter 2. But before we get there, you notice in verse 5, it talks about no bush of the field is yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And you might wonder, wait, no plants? I thought plants were already created back on day 3. So why are no plants here when, at the time when man is created? Now, some people will make a big deal out of that and say, well, see, none of this is chronological, none of it's literal, we don't have to pay attention to the history here. But we should look a little more closely. It's not the same words for plants. Um, Certainly the word bush or the field is is not found in chapter 1. And it's not only a small plant, but small plants of the field is more precise than in chapter 1. What we seem to have here is a more precise to some particular plants that had not yet sprung up, and, and for certain reason. In fact, the bush of the field is usually referring to these kind of gnarly desert plants, uh, probably what is going to be brought up in chapter 3, the thorns and thistles, which would only spring up after man fell, that he would have to contend with. The small plants of the field uh, are plants like grain, cultivated plants, not wild plants, um, particularly plants as being cultivated. There were no fields of grain out there. There was, there was work for man to do. They had not sprung, yet, sprung up yet because there was no man to work the ground. Man would begin with an orchard. The Garden of Eden was an orchard, had trees. And then he would care for it and then go on to subdue the earth to cultivate these plants. We also see that the ground was in need of a worker, of a cultivator. And so, with this condition, verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man of dust, uh, sorry, formed the man of dust from the ground. So he takes dust from the ground and forms the man and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The way God made the first man demonstrates how important man is to God. It has something to say about how much he values mankind even today uh, with respect to his place in creation. As As Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him? God has made this vast creation, and yet, unlike all the other living creatures God made, here he doesn't merely just speak him into existence, He forms him out of the dust, and he breathes the the breath of life, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Just the way it's described uh, shows God's care and and closeness to this creature made in his image. And so what care and attention God gives. We also might see here a glimpse of the Spirit, because the word for breath and Spirit is the same. We already saw the Spirit in chapter 1 hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit is the giver of life and gives life here to man. Notice also that it is the man, not merely his body. The man is made of dust, and the man is a living creature. Actually, the word there is living soul, but uh, often translated as living creature. Man is made of dust, the man is a living soul, 
Both his physical and spiritual aspects are essential to him. You're not uh, a soul trapped into some prison of clay. You know, you are body, you are soul. Uh, These are both essential to you. That's why when we are raised from the dead, we will be both body and soul. In fact, we probably would not distinguish between body and soul if it was not for death. Um, If there was no death, would we think to distinguish them? Uh, But with death, we realize that there is um, uh, the soul that continues to have its existence uh, even as the body finds corruption. But God made man as a unity, as, as body and soul. Another point to make here, um, more on the side, is that this verse does not justify abortion. So when Bill Clinton, uh, back in the day, asked his pastor about abortion, uh, his pastor pointed to this verse and told him that life is defined by the breath of life and thus begins at birth. That pastor actually didn't think that abortion was usually right. He thought it was usually wrong, but others took this way of thinking and used it to justify abortion. But life was given to Adam with a breath because Adam was created as an adult. And last time I checked, most adults generally breathe if they're alive. Uh, Before this, he was inanimate, uh, made out of dirt, uh, but this gave him life. Uh, But if an adult stops breathing, are they dead? Not necessarily. We do CPR because there might be a hope of reviving them. So this is not uh, a definition with scientific precision. Uh, The unborn do not yet breathe, but at birth they will. Their lack of breath is not proof that they are dead. It's proof that they need our care. But they are biologically alive. They're animate. They uh, are not dead. And it's a sorrowful thing if they die before birth. They are not the same as Adam was before he breathed. Additionally, the Bible speaks of the life of flesh being in its blood in Leviticus 17 and does so in the context of prohibiting murder in Genesis 9, that the life is in the blood. Do not shed blood. Living humans and animals generally have blood circulating through them to sustain life, and this includes unborn children. Again, I don't think this is meant to define life with scientific precision. I think the Bible teaches life begins at conception. Um, But it shows that the Bible can use more than one marker to define life and often speaks in a very common sense sort of way. Another thing that we can notice about man's creation is that the man's distinctive origin and orientation tells you something about masculinity. Now, Adam is the first man. He represents all of mankind, and there are certain things about him that are true of all humans. Um, because the woman's going to come from him. But both Adam and Eve have uh, different origins, different names, uh, and this is going to distinguish their unique characteristics uh, with respect to each other. And we find more about that in chapter 2 than we did in chapter 1. Just as the woman's name is going to have significance later, so the man, and notice the man is the same word as Adam, just it has a the at the beginning. So if you're reading your English translation, whenever it says the man, it's the Adam. You know, but when it's used without the, it's uh, translated as a personal name, Adam. Uh, but we're speaking of the same word. 
And Adam comes from the word for ground, which is Adama, uh, simply the, the feminine form of that same name. So Adam is made from the ground, named after the ground, and he is to work the ground. Likewise, the woman will be made from the man. She's going to be named after the man, and she is made to be a helper to the man. Some consistency here. Uh, The ultimate end for both of them is going to be the creation mandate. They are both given that. Uh, But Adam found the task and then received a beloved helper, whereas Eve found the man and therefore received the task. They have different orientations, different ways that they uh, approach life. They share the same mission, but they approach it in different and complementary ways. They have different orientations that shape their callings and roles and priorities. And the manner of creation here, this design, is going to be really spelled out and, and unfolded in the rest of the Bible's teachings about men and women. But we see a, a basis for it here and something that the Bible's going to call back to, like when Paul discusses it in his epistles, back to the way they were made. Just as a brief application, you know, men and young men, you can see in particular your responsibility from Adam here to work and to keep, uh, to provide and to protect. While Adam will find that he needs a wife, a helper corresponding to him, he begins by finding his calling, learning responsibility. Uh, And he starts in on that and then realizes how important his wife is going to be. Parents might also learn something from the fact that before God brought a wife to the one made in his image, his son Adam, he also gave, before that, he gave his son Adam the ability to work, and he placed him in a calling. And prepare your sons to work, to work productively, so that they might get married. And then a more general point. Man was made for work. Work was not a result of the fall. As Calvin says, idleness is against nature. Um, People were made with purpose to be useful, to employ their abilities, not to simply sit there as a lump of clay. That's our origin, perhaps, but we were given life. We were given the ability to work and were uh, given the responsibility to work. Both men and women are called to work and to to avoid idleness, though they may do so differently. And you are made to usefully employ your abilities for your good, for the good of others, for the good of the world, unto God's glory. Work is more painful now, but work is not bad. Uh, idleness, though, is against the creation order. It's a rebellion against your nature. Notice also that Adam was to keep the garden. Not only to work it, but to keep it. The word keep is to refer to guard, preserve, protect, defend. Like the cherubim would later do with a flaming sword, Adam was the one supposed to keep the garden originally, to be the guardian, using his strength to protect this realm. And Adam was to be a a faithful and profitable steward of the garden. He wasn't supposed to just exploit it and then move on, but rather to care for it, to keep it, and perhaps expand it, but not to destroy it. John Calvin notes two errors contrary to this keeping, which I think are a helpful way of thinking. Instead of keeping, there are some who are wastefully indulgent, wasteful in spending. 
Um, there are also those who, instead of keeping, who wastefully hoard it. They're not responsible stewards. They don't employ it. They don't use it. Uh, just let it sit there. So keep this in mind, to work and to keep. Uh, to work productively, to gratefully and responsibly use God's gifts, and to imitate what God did, that he preserves, he works and keeps, uh, that he preserves his creation and makes it useful to others and is generous with his creation. So God created man, made him from the dust of the ground, uh, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, placed him in the garden to work it and keep it. And so let's look at this garden the Garden of Eden, man's original home. It was man's original home where he dwelt with God. It was the promised land, uh, the original promised land. It was a particular place on earth in the region of Eden. You know, Eden was a region, and in that region was a garden, uh, and that's why we call it the Garden of Eden. And it was a delightful orchard of fruitful trees. Uh, Eden is similar to the Hebrew word for delight. It was a delightful place. When it's translated into Greek, the garden is called paradise. That's why we find that word used in the New Testament. Uh, Eden is referred to in prophecy as proverbial for being pleasant, for being fruitful. Not a barren wilderness, but it was like Eden, like the garden of the Lord. It's the way Eden is referred to. It's an image of the blessing of God upon his people, and it literally was so when it existed. Man was to begin in the garden and go out from there then to subdue the earth, as it were, to expand what had already begun. Now, from the description that Moses gives, a description I presume would be intelligible to the people he wrote to, uh, Eden appears to have been in the Armenian highlands, what's now uh, eastern Turkey, somewhere generally in that vicinity. At least that's where the Tigris and Euphrates originate from today. Although, of course, the garden was destroyed in the worldwide flood, and certain things were changed since that time. But Moses notes that there were gold and jewels in Havilah, a region in Arabia. Um, And he mentions that. Why does he mention it? I think in part because it shows the potential that was in the earth. That Adam Adam and Eve, who are to subdue the earth, would eventually, uh, them and their descendants, find this gold, find these jewels, use them to adorn the city of God. The gold of that land was good. It's interesting the city of God is portrayed as a golden city in Revelation, adorned and glorified. But there are resources there to be developed. Now, another point to note is that verses 5 through 6 say that the Lord God had not caused rain to fall upon the ground. What's all that about? Some say, well, Maybe the first time it rained was the flood. Maybe it didn't rain on the earth until then. Others will say maybe it started raining after man fell into sin, and the less reliable rain would replace the way it had been watered prior to that. I think that might be plausible. But all we're really told is that it didn't rain before man was created. Uh, But it does tell us that the earth did not need rain to be watered. Because there was another way of watering the earth, and that was a a stable way of watering the earth. It was irrigated by what's called here a mist, 
Uh, mist, though, should probably be translated as a spring. That's the ESV footnote. The word can mean spring, and I think that better fits the context. Uh, spring goes up from the land, out of the ground, right, and waters the ground. And the text goes on to describe how the earth was watered by rivers that came from one river, which came from Eden, which presumably then came from this spring. That the water came out of the ground and went out to water the earth. And uh, the image then is of a spring in Eden producing a river that divided and brought water to all the earth. The Israelites, where did they just come from when they received the book of Genesis? They just come from Egypt. How, how is Egypt watered? by the Nile. They were familiar with the advantages of a consistent source of water and irrigation. I'm not saying that God came up with this idea because they were familiar with the concept, but that Moses points this out, that Eden and the world was, was consistently watered by this river, this river that gave life with the constant and reliable fertility that it would bring to the land. Notice also, what does it mean that these rivers came from Eden? What does it mean about Eden? Eden is high up, right? Water flows downhill. Um, So Eden, or the Garden of Eden, was something like on a mountain or plateau, or raised plateau. And on this mountain was the Garden of Eden. And so we have this image of of a community on a mountain from which life-giving waters issue forth to the earth. Can you think of any other places in Scripture that this image is used? Uh, Hearkening back to that original state of blessedness. Ezekiel 47 speaks of the rivers going out from the temple, going down the mountain, and making even the Dead Sea fresh and full of life. Revelation 21 through 22 is going to speak of the river of life in the New Jerusalem and going out from there and having the tree of life that would be for the healing of all the nations. While it doesn't mention water, Isaiah 2 mentions the house of the the mountain of the house of the Lord being raised up higher than all the other hills and a word that would go out throughout all of the nations and bring peace and blessing. The life-giving waters of Eden are used in Scripture to describe how the life-giving spirit, the, the water of life, the word of God would give life to the church and issue from the church throughout all the earth to give life from Christ to the world. While you might think it a stretch, perhaps, it's at least an illustration. The early church fathers would even notice how there's four rivers, just like there's now four Gospels of Christ, you know, that all come from the same source. You know, perhaps just as an illustration, I don't know if that was originally intended, but uh, does fit with the idea that these waters were a sign of blessing. And so the Garden of Eden is, is a precursor to the temple. The temple intentionally hearken back to Eden. That's why you had trees on its walls and cherubim on its walls, you know, as a promise of a, perhaps a return to God's presence. It was a precursor to Mount Zion, to that community, the people of God, to the new Jerusalem that's portrayed in Revelation 21 and 22, a reality that will be fully realized at Christ's return. So through God's redemptive grace, the paradise that was lost will be regained with glory at the return of Christ. Not the literal garden, but the reality that was realized in that literal garden so long ago. So man was created. He was placed in a blessed place, a place of delight, the Garden of Eden, a fruitful place, 
given access to all the trees, right? Oh, wait, not all the trees. Almost all the trees. All the trees except one. And that introduces us to the third point I want to bring up, and that is the covenant of works. God's first covenant with man. God made a covenant with Adam, and in Adam with all humanity. Adam represented all his natural descendants, um, including Eve. In this way, God made a covenant with mankind. Adam represented us all. Well, later in Scripture, we find a lot more reflection on this, like in Romans 5, where he is compared to Christ, and how in Adam, uh, all of us sin and death spread to all because he was our head. This first covenant with Adam has been commonly called the covenant of works. Sometimes it's been called a covenant of life. Sometimes you could call it the covenant of creation. But it's different than the covenant we have today with God. It had different terms. But before I go further, what's a covenant? As Presbyterians, we like using that word. I like using that word at least a lot. But what is a covenant? Does it refer to something that a homeowner's association has? You know, that's how some people are familiar with the word. There might be a little connection there. But uh, a covenant is an alliance between two parties where they swear loyalty to each other, Um, just in basic terms here. Uh, Covenants were made between kings and their vassals in the ancient world, between friends or between peoples. Think of David and Jonathan made a covenant. Or Israel and the Gibeonites made a covenant, like a treaty. Or there's the marriage covenant between husband and wife. That's a particular covenant. A covenant is an oath that establishes a relationship between two parties and defines the nature of that relationship, the obligations of that relationship. But what does it mean for God to have a covenant with people? When God makes a covenant with people, he establishes a mutual bond of fellowship between them A loyalty between them takes them under his special care and promises them life and blessing. And then what is the covenant of works? The covenant of works is described here in Genesis 2. And the condition of that covenant was perfect obedience. In it, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, blessed them as his children, confirmed his promise of life with the tree of life, and they served him in accordance with his commandments. But that covenant was broken, broken by Adam's sin. And we are all now condemned as treacherous covenant breakers until we enter in the covenant of grace, which comes later. And so this this covenant was something in addition to God's creation of man. God would have required our obedience whether he entered into covenant with us or not. We were his creatures, like the rest of creation, and we owed him obedience regardless. But, in addition to creating us, he entered into a covenant with us. It was because of God's generosity that he he stooped down to enter into close fellowship with Adam and Eve. He gave them a fruitful garden, gave him fellowship with him, and promised them eternal life on condition of perfect obedience, the obedience they already obeyed him. And so people speak of, the, of grace even being in the covenant of works, not redemptive grace, not saving grace, because they didn't need saving, but grace being undeserved generosity that God showed Adam and Eve. Now, you might 
be looking at Genesis too closely and being like, well, he's using the word covenant a lot. I really don't see the word covenant here. It's true. The word covenant is not used in Genesis 2. So why am I calling it a covenant? Um, Partially because the way the New Testament speaks of this relation makes it parallel to our relationship in Christ. In Romans 5, the parallel between Adam is a head and Christ is our head. Hosea 6, 7 also calls, uh, says that the people of Israel broke covenant like Adam, implying that Adam also had broken a covenant. But uh, primarily calling it a covenant because all of the elements of a covenant are here. There's two parties, God and Adam as representative of mankind. There's, uh, so there's two parties. There's a condition, <coughs> perfect obedience. Three, there's a promise of blessing, which is life in its fullest sense. And there is also the threat of a curse, which is death in its fullest sense. This covenant, even at a sacrament, we have covenant sacraments, right? Like the Lord's Supper, that promise, that, uh, that, uh, that promise life, that our signs and seal of life, not only life, but life in Christ, our Redeemer. Well, this covenant had a sacrament as well, it had the tree of life which was a sign and seal of the life that God promised them. It confirmed the physical and spiritual life, uh, life in communion with God that man had begun to taste and promised a time in which man would be permanently established in that condition. This life was given to man through the Son of God. John 1 says that all things were made through him, through the Son. In him, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Um, So Jesus was not our Redeemer yet, but as the Son of God through whom all things were made and who gave life to man, we participated in life through him as well. So the tree of life represents life, life in God in particular, uh, eternal life. And so Adam and Eve were supposed to obey God, and as a particular test of their obedience, there was another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were forbidden to eat of that tree. And this would test to see if they honored God's authority over them. Would they obey him? Or would they reach out to take from that tree? Would they obey God? Or would they not? While they were there in the garden, they were tested. And the command was clear, don't eat it. If they obeyed, eternal life. The curse for disobedience was death. Now notice that man was tested in a garden. Jesus is going to be tested in a wilderness. He's going to be tested in a garden, but he's sweating drops of blood. Jesus is going to be tested in much harsher, harsher, weaker, mortal conditions. But man was tested originally in a garden full of delight and fruitfulness and pleasantness The fact that man has rebelled against God demonstrates the ingratitude and folly of sin. Sadly, we're no longer able to keep the covenant of works due to our sin. But it forms the background of the rest of the Bible. By it, all are condemned. According to its terms, sin and death have passed to all. And to release us, Christ bore and exhausted its curse and faithfully obeyed for his people 
so that in the end, by grace, believers end up with what was originally promised, that we regain paradise. Not only does Revelation contain many references to Genesis 2, but the echoes of Eden are found throughout the Bible. Even outside the Bible, in the hearts of men and women, there's a natural longing for Eden, for a time and a place where man dwelt in peace with God, with each other, with creation. But the way to that condition is now blocked by sin. It would take another special act of providence, and this one a costly one, that would open again the way to paradise. And that would be through the work of Jesus Christ. So when the Lord God created man, he graciously entered into a covenant of life with him. Man lived in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, and there was harmony between God and man and the world. It was the dawn, the beginning of a golden age. The world was fresh, it was full of peace and potential. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil would remind them of the Creator's sovereignty and man's duty to obey God as his child and as his vice-regent. Man would be reminded by the tree of life, of the gift of life that God was giving him. Man dwelt under God's blessing and with him. But the covenant was broken by Adam. Paradise was lost. Mankind became exiles, disinherited, dwelling in pain and guilt. So look to the last Adam, to Jesus Christ. He came from heaven to save sinners. He has borne the curse, and he offers life on different terms now, terms of grace, terms of faith in him. For this life comes through him alone. So come to Jesus and partake of life again. Enter the kingdom, the city of God, through Christ. Hope in the Lord Jesus, looking for the life of the world to come, when the saints shall inherit paradise, fully restored, perfected, and glorified. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown us, that once we have gone astray, everyone his own way, despite the goodness that you had given us, that you came for us from heaven to restore us again after your image, to uh, bring us out of death into life by your glorious resurrection, to bring us out of the condemnation of sin by being condemned and suffering death for us. We pray that you would indeed Give us the hope of eternal life, to strengthen us in that hope, uh, to build up our faith, to bring others into this uh, glorious salvation. We pray this. Amen.